Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their books at a Warren Public Library. Karen Dion is the author of the international bestseller, The Marsh King's Daughter, a psychological suspense novel set in Michigan's Upper Peninsula Wilderness, published by G.P. Putnam's Sons in the U.S. and 25 other languages. She is the co-founder of the online writers community Backspace and organizes the Salt K Writers Retreat, held every other year on a private island in the Bahamas. She is a member of the International Thriller Writers, where she served on the board of directors as vice president technology. She's been, Karen has been honored by the Michigan Humanities Council as a humanities scholar for her body of work as an author, writer, and as co-founder of Backspace. She enjoys nature photography and lives in the, with her husband in Detroit's northern suburbs. Let's give Karen a warm welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Shelby Township to be exact, so you know, 10 miles away. It was very nice to be here and I thank you all for coming out tonight and thanks Amy and the library for having me. So I thought I would start by telling you a little bit about myself and my background as a writer. Um, I, the Marsh King's Daughter is my fourth published novel. Um, there's the hardcover and the paperback covers. It, um, my early novels were science-based thrillers, similar to what Michael Crichton writes. And I started writing those because that's what I like to read. So my first novel is called Freezing Point. It's about a solar energy company using microwaves from orbiting satellites to melt Antarctic icebergs into drinking water. But things go wrong. I call it Jurassic Park on Ice. <laughs> it's kind of a crazy book. But um, so those first two books were published in mass market paperback by Berkeley, which is one of the big publishers. So when they published, they were in grocery stores and drugstores, they were in Myers and the bookstores, and it was all very exciting for me. Um, they published in 2008 and 2011. But sales were soft, and publishing is a business after all, so uh, my publisher did not want a third point book. It was freezing point and boiling point. Second one set at an active volcano. So at the same time that I was doing this, um, I was actually living in St. Ignace in the Upper Peninsula when I started writing seriously, and I didn't know any writers in person. So I started interacting with writers online, and I ended up starting my own writers organization with my business partner called Backspace. And it was mostly discussion forums, but as an offshoot of that, I also organized and ran conferences for writers in New York. Um, for writers, this would be for people who were hoping to get published. They wanted to meet a literary agent who would open the doors to, you know, all their dreams coming true. <laughs> so the conferences were very successful. We did that for almost 10 years. And there were many times that I thought, well, you know, my writing career didn't really take off. Maybe I should just concentrate on organizing the conferences because it's very satisfying, you know, to help other people reach their publishing goals. But in the lead up to my 2013 conference in New York, um, I happened to notice that an author who had gotten her literary agent at one of my previous conferences was coming out with her next book. And I hadn't written anything. And it just hit me, you know. And so for me, that was, that was my moment. You know, I decided, no, I'm not done being a writer. Um, and I had gotten overextended. I was on the board of directors of ITW and doing the conferences and everything but writing, right? So, we decided that would be our last conference. I went off the board of directors a year early. Not too much later, I got the idea for the Marsh King's Daughter. <laughs> 
and here I am. <laughs> so um, sadly, there's no more conferences, but um, I'm having a real good time doing my, my book things. So um, The Marsh King's Daughter is translated and published in 25 languages, <laughs> which is pretty astonishing. So um, when my agent sent the manuscript out to editors to see if anyone wanted to purchase it, it also sold at auction, meaning that more than one publisher wanted the book. Um, actually, 12 publishers bid on the book. So Simon and & Schuster and HarperCollins and Doubleday and, and all of the big publishers were eager to snap up this book. And then um, it has sold at auction in some of the foreign countries too. Um, so that's, that's always been real exciting. So a lot of other cool things have happened for The Marsh King's Daughter. Towards the end of the year, it started showing up on a lot of best books of the year lists, either from newspapers or from libraries or bookstores, booksellers, authors. And this was, I think, the most outstanding. iBooks, you know, like iTunes, iBooks. It chose uh, the Marsh, they chose The Marsh King's Daughter as one of their 10 best novels of the year. That's like of, of all novels, <laughs> which was pretty exciting for me. And then um, currently, The Marsh King's Daughter, um, well, it was named a Michigan Notable Book this spring by the Library of Michigan, which was super thrilling for me. And then um, it's also up for a couple of awards. I could just go on and on and on for all of the exciting things that have happened for the book. But I thought I would tell you a little bit about how I got the idea for the novel, this life-changing novel. <laughs> um, first off, I'm curious how many people have already read the book? Good, about half, okay. Well, as I talk about the book, um, it doesn't, I, we won't really be giving too much away because the first page of the novel tells a lot about the book. So I actually woke up in the night with the first sentences of the Marsh King's Daughter fully formed in my head. I wasn't dreaming about the character. She was just, the sentences were just there as if she was talking to me. And the sentences are, if I told you my mother's name, you'd recognize it right away. My mother was famous, though she never wanted to be. Hers wasn't the kind of fame anyone would wish for. J.C. Dugard, Amanda Berry, Elizabeth Smart, that kind of thing, though my mother was none of them. Seriously, all that was just poof in my head. I woke up with that. And so I was in that sleep state where, you know, it looked like a good idea, but I couldn't get up and write it down, so I just repeated it over and over in my head to make sure I would remember in the morning. Well, lo and behold, in the morning, it still looked like a good idea <laughs> because, you know, they don't always. So I took a few minutes in that next morning and I wrote a few paragraphs in the character's voice, which um, was basically, you know, her elaborating a little bit more on who she was. And what I think is so interesting is those sentences that I woke up with in the night and the paragraphs I wrote the next morning are now the first page of the novel. So sometimes that's how inspiration hits, and I was very fortunate to be, uh, I guess, hit with a sledgehammer, <laughs> you know. So this is, for those who haven't read the book, this is how it continues. Uh, Helena is the character's name, and again, she says, if I told you my mother's name, you'd recognize it right away. My mother was famous, though she never wanted to be. Hers wasn't the kind of fame anyone would wish for. J.C. Degard, Amanda Berry, Elizabeth Smart, that kind of thing though my mother was none of them. You'd recognize my mother's name if I told it to you, and then you'd wonder, briefly, because the years when people cared about my mother are long gone, as she is. Where is she now? And didn't she have a daughter while she was missing? 
and whatever happened to the little girl. I could tell you that I was 12 and my mother 28 when we were recovered from her captor. That I spent those years living in what the papers describe as a rundown farmhouse surrounded by swamp in the middle of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. That while I did learn to read, thanks to a stack of National Geographic magazines from the 1950s and a yellowed edition of the collected poems of Robert Frost, I never went to school, never rode a bicycle, never knew electricity or running water. That the only people I spoke to during those 12 years were my mother and father. That I didn't know we were captives until we were not. I could tell you that my mother passed away two years ago, and while the news media covered her death, you probably missed it because she died during a news cycle heavy with more important stories. I can tell you what the papers did not. She never got over the years of captivity. She wasn't a pretty, articulate, outspoken champion of the cause. There were no book deals for my timid, self-effacing wreck of a mother, no cover of time. My mother shrank from attention the way arrowroot leaves wither after a frost. But I won't tell you my mother's name because this isn't her story, it's mine. So that's how the book starts. And what I think is interesting, of course, this, this is actually a picture of uh, the Tequamanan River Valley where the story takes place. I took this picture and, and uh, there are ridges off in the distance and that's where Helena grew up. When I got the, I, when I was writing up those paragraphs that first morning, my first inclination was to give the book an urban setting because I was thinking about the young women in Cleveland and how they were hidden away for so many years, essentially in plain sight which is of course a, a terrible and a horrible thing, but uh, writers, particularly writers of suspense and thrillers, we have this terrible, horrible dark side and we go, oh wow, that's really interesting, you know. But I thought maybe that's a little obvious. So I set the book then where I did, you know, on a, in a cabin on a ridge surrounded by marsh or swamp in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And the reason I set the book there is because I lived there. I lived in the Upper Peninsula for 30 years. During the 1970s, my husband and I homesteaded in the Upper Peninsula. We were part of the hippie back to the land movement where you know city kids would move from the city to live closer to nature. For my husband and I, the idea of um, working our whole lives you know, at a job, you, you collect your paycheck at the end of the week and you go to the grocery store and you buy food. We wanted to grow our own food. Obviously, we weren't going to do that in the Upper Peninsula. We found that out. <laughs> Tomatoes don't even grow, get ripe in the Upper Peninsula. So, uh, and my husband was a stoneware potter at the time. So we moved to, moved to the UP and um, lived in a tent. <laughs> Our oldest daughter was six weeks old. Um, we lived in this little tent, which I got a pointer here, while well, we built this little cabin. Um, we carried water from a stream, we sampled wild foods, so like in the book, I've eaten cattail heads and milkweed pods. We were doing it just for fun. M28 is right out here. We were on the highway because we were, my husband was going to build a pottery studio and we would stag the tourists going by. But um, obviously when I wrote the book, I was able to draw heavily on our experiences. So this is the cabin that we built, which is really quite decent, and it's still there. They uh, have put a second story on it and an addition behind, but I was up there in June touring, and I stopped and I took a whole bunch of pictures, which was really fun. It was fun to see what was still the same and, and had not been changed. Um, yeah, so that's us with the baby. 
Oh, I should back up. So we scavenged stone from farmers' fields, and we tore down a house for lumber. And that window behind us, that was from the dump at the um, mental hospital in Newberry. Oh. <laughs> and, and it only opens like in three narrow strips, and that's why, you know, because it was from the mental hospital. <laughs> but there's the, there's the finished product. Pretty good, huh? Yeah. <laughs> no, we, well, not really. Like, like we used this wood stove, you know, and, and it was a cook stove. We used it for heating, and that was a mistake we made because, you know, it just had the tiny little firebox, and you had to get up in the night and, and to keep the fire going all night. There were so many mistakes we made because we didn't know what we were doing, but uh, we had fun. <laughs> the baby's yep, so, but she's still like two-ish, which has me maybe 22, 23 years old, so we had done all that by that time. At this point, back to my story of how I, I got the idea for the book, I have the character because I woke up in the night thinking about her. I have the setting, which is going to be in the Upper Peninsula here, but I still don't have a story for the character. What's going to happen to her? What's, what's the, the structure of the book going to be? So at this point, I got my childhood books of fairy tales off the shelf. I loved fairy tales when I was young. I, I think that's where our love of, of real reading gets started. And not the Disney versions, you know, but the real fairy tales, right? And the reason I started paging through them is because I like books that offer a modern take on a fairy tale. For instance, A1 Ivy's The Snow Child is one. Um, if you haven't read it, you must. It's fantastic. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and it was her first novel. It's set in 1920s Alaska, and it roughly parallels the, the fairy tale The Snow Child. So, and, and I was aware of it because she and I share a literary agent. So I started paging through and I found The Marsh King's Daughter, <laughs> which those of you who have read the book, you understand how perfectly it fits. For those who haven't, the fairy tale The Marsh King's Daughter is one of Hans Christian Andersen's longer fairy tales. And in it, the main character, The Marsh King's Daughter, is the daughter of a beautiful Egyptian princess and the evil Marsh King. Well, the character who came to me in the night is the daughter of an innocent girl and the evil man who took her. In the fairy tale, it's told from the point of view of the storks, and it's set in the north, in Viking country. And I had set my book already in the north, right, <laughs> in northern Michigan. And then um, it's the Marsh King's daughter. It takes place in the marsh. And I had set the book, you know, in this, on this ridge surrounded by swamp. And the thing about the fairy tale that really excited me is in the fairy tale, the Marsh King's daughter, by day, she's beautiful like her mother, but has her father's wicked wild temper. And then at night that flips and she takes on her mother's gentle nature in the guise of a hideous frog. So the fairy tale is all about the struggle of good and evil within us, you know, and in, in her, which side is going to come to the fore. And that is the case for the daughter in my novel as well, because, you know, genetically she's half her mother, half her father, you know, she's being raised. To, to copy her father, you know, uh, she loves her father, but you know, how is she going to turn out then as an adult? So that's, I used about a third of the fairy tale, it's a very long one, and that formed the, uh, the basis or the structure of the book. In fact, I even named my character Helena, because in the fairy tale, the character is Helga, you know, so I wanted a variation of that. So, um, yeah, that's my story, <laughs> how I came to write the book, The Marsh King's Daughter. And thank you all for coming, and thanks for reading, and thank you, Amy, for having me. <laughs>
Straight from the Author has been brought to you by MyWarn. To hear more podcasts like this, visit MyWarn.org. Again, that's MIWarn.org.